All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And before we look at the Word of God, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to come and worship you. We know that we can only come and worship you and that we were only saved to worship you through Christ Jesus. And we want to learn more of your word. So Lord, give us listening ears and help us to be attentive. Even to scripture, Lord, that is difficult. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it and then think about it during the week so you can transform us into the image of Christ. I praise you for today, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 19. Talking about, in this passage, reconciliation. And, of course, the message title is Reconciliation Possible. You know, I was thinking about this this more, uh, actually this week and the weeks before, that, you, you know, we can do the math and work out a million and one details to put a landing craft the size of a small car on the surface of, the, of Mars and then program it to do geological research and tests to drill holes into the rock on Mars and then send us back pictures and data so other scientists can examine it and so on and so forth, but we cannot do the math on how to stop wars or how to prevent aggression in man's hearts. Aggression capable of 101 different expressions of hatred. We, we see that all over the place, all over the world. With all our know-how, we can't even solve man's basic problems. We haven't come far at all. We cannot reconcile men with men. We cannot reconcile nations with nations. And with all our attempts with peace, and with all our attempts with peace treaties and peace covenants and peace agreements, there is no peace. We are at war and conflicts all over the world. There's probably more conflicts and wars than we can even count. I came across an interesting bit of information in my reading. I read that between or, or from 1500 BC to AD 850, there were 7,500 eternal covenant covenants agreed upon among various nations with the hope of bringing peace, but that no covenant had lasted longer than two years. See, the way peace could be had among men is first peace is had between God and men. Only then could there be peace between men and men. And only there, then could there be peace in the nations of men. See, the only eternal covenant that has lasted and that will last is the one made by the eternal God 
sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So reconciliation in Christ alone is possible, period. In fact, Colossians 1.20, it says this, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So in reality, this passage of scripture we're looking at has to do with reconciliation. And the basic meaning of reconciliation is to bring someone together who formerly was in conflict with another. That's what reconciliation is. And so, probably the biggest conflict that has happened is the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because they were so incredibly different. They never had an opportunity to really get together with other nations of the world because of their differences. So, in this passage of Scripture, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about reconciliation, not only between man and God, but reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we're going to look at that today. And there are several points I want, to, want you to look at and follow along with this morning. There's the first one is this, that Gentiles were at a greater distance from God than anyone else. So if reconciliation is to be realized, it must be realized by closing the gap. The distance with both parties need to be closed. And if you look at verse number 11, it says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, when it's using the word uncircumcision, it's talking about the Gentiles. When it's using the word circumcision, it's talking about the Jews. So here is a call to Gentile believers to remember who they were before they came to Christ. The Greek word actually for Gentile is a word that is pretty familiar to us. Uh, it is the word ethnos, which we get the word ethnic, which really means nation or people group. Uh, and so here, it's used in this way. It's used in Gentiles, meaning not Jews, in contrast with the Jews. So two groups, the Gentiles, non-Jew, and the Jews. Those are the two groups. Those are the two groups of peoples in the world. So being Gentile meant that they did not have the mark of the covenant in their flesh. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that God gave Abraham the outward sign of the covenant, and Abraham didn't resist God, but listened, believed what God had to say, had to say in Scripture, and of course was justified by faith. And the Word of God says, and he gave him, that's Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So see, the Gentiles often suffered contempt from the circumcision people, from the Jews. And of course, the Jews were looked at in, uh, as dogs, as scavengers, as the lowest you can get 
of people on the earth, and that's how Jews really looked at them. But according to our text, and what I've been preaching in Ephesians, all, both Jew and Gentile, have equally sinned, and were both separated from God. But Gentiles had a greater separation. And if you notice in verse 12, it says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So, Look in our passage how great the separation was between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, it was a five-fold separation. It says, number one in our passage, it says they were separated from the promises of Messiah. From the promise of them, separated from Christ. Remember, the word Christ is the word for Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. The Jewish word would be Hebrew word would be Messiah. So they were separated from Messiah. They, in other words, they weren't given any promises that someone would come and rescue them and help them. They weren't given any promises that would, God would come and dwell in the middle of them and be their God and they would be his people. They, they received no promises like that. In fact, second thing was they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. All right, Excluded from that, and that means that Gentiles were not born into any special nation like the Jews were. They were born into pagan, idolatrous nations. A third fold separation is that they were strangers in our text to the covenants of promise. That means that God made no covenants with the Gentile nations. Gentiles were aliens and strangers to those things. They were not brought into a special relationship with God, brought about by covenants or agreements. It was only through Abraham that God would bring the promise. And you may say, well, what was the promise that God gave Abraham? Well, the promise was, fa- it's found in Genesis 12. No uh, reason to turn there at this point. But verse 1 through 3, the promise was this, that he was going to create a great nation through Abraham, that he was going to bless Abraham, that he was going to make Abraham a great name, those who blessed Abraham would be blessed. Those who cursed Abraham would be cursed. All the nations would f- be blessed because of Abraham and the covenant God made with him. And then God gave Abraham all the land of Canaan. So the Gentiles were strangers to any agreement of the God of creation with them. So later we see here that in verse number 12, it says this, that they were, a fourfold separation is that they were without hope. They had, having no hope. Isn't this still the case? We live in a world that is without hope. People are hopeless today. Politics or political hope is like a bucket with holes. Philosophies prove to be empty and solve no real problems and issues. All it does is raise more questions. Economics, in the end, becomes moth-eaten and worthless. Religions provide no power to help people deal with life, let alone prepare them for the great leveler death or the greatest leveler judgment. See, anyway of saying it. People are without hope. And another way to say that is they have no concept of a goal. 
They have no concept of a goal to which they're heading. And that view is seen most notably in people's view of death. In other words, people who are hopeless have a circular view of life. We're just going in a circle, man. We're just chasing our tail. The things that have happened, happen, and they're going to happen again and over again, and we're heading nowhere. But a Christian biblical worldview, when you know Christ, is a linear, linear view of life. We are heading somewhere. We are going somewhere. We are going to end up exactly where God intends and tells us in the Word of God. So see, that gives us hope. Isn't the doctrine of resurrection hope? And if you don't believe that, you are without hope. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want to do to make find pleasure because when you die, you die like an animal. That's it. That's how most people view life. See, Gentiles were without hope. And the world, most of the Gentile world is still without hope. Also, if you notice the fifth fold separation in our text it says gentiles were without god in the world now remember this is not saying that the ephesian gentiles were without religion or without gods they had many gods many gods were worshipped in ephesus and so was caesar himself worshipped emperor worship was in ephesus however it was the goddess Artemis who dominated the city's religious affairs. In fact, Ephesus was a center point of religion. It's like Rome. It was like Rome then. You went to Ephesus because it was the, where the temple of Diana was. It was the seventh wonder of the world. And local, local legend was that the statue fell from heaven. And, of course, that became their central part of worship. In fact, that's what Paul deals with in Acts chapter 19, where he is saying to the men of Ephesus that the Ephesians are the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven. How that happened, I don't know. Some believe that it could have been like a meteorite. But what does Paul finally say to the people there in Ephesus? He says in Acts chapter 19, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Remember, most of the economy there in Ephesus was the economy of making idols. And so therefore, if you preach against that, then there goes the economy, right? There goes my income. There goes my ability to make money. And so Paul gave the people an alternative that they never heard before. And until the apostle challenged them of their foolish notion of man-made gods, they didn't know anything else. In fact, if you want to say one thing about the people of Ephesus, they were choking on religion. They were gagging on it. So Paul attacks man-made gods, which brought the anger of the people. And of course, it, it should bring the anger of people today in some ways, too. It's one thing for for Christ to be preached as one of many gods or many choices of gods, but it is an altogether another thing when we preach 
the truth that there is only one God. That is offensive to people today. It's always been offensive, but especially today. When we have many choices. We have many choices of even a hamburger. We can go to five different, ten different places to get a different hamburger. And so when we say there's one God, we say, wait a minute, where's my choices? I want my choices. Right? Isn't that what life is about? Choices? I like what Isaiah said. If you've been reading through the Word of God, Isaiah said this about idols. He says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. That's what all idolatry is. Whether it's a graven image or something we make up in our mind about who God is, it's, it's worthless. It means nothing. It just deceives. See, the, So the point of our text is that it is not merely a social and cultural separation that was the main problem for the Gentiles. It was also a problem with the, for the Jews, and the p- main problem for both groups was a spiritual problem. And of course, the spiritual problem is that sin separated both groups from God. And even though the Jews bore the physical sign of God's promise on their physical bodies, it was no guarantee of access to God. According to Scripture, the Jews had a real problem because they remained stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. In fact, if you just turn over to Acts chapter 7, we were reading this morning, we'll get to that passage. Look at verse 51 and verse 52, because see, the Jews had resisted everything God had said, and they misunderstood what the prophets spoke. And so it says in Acts 7.51, look what it says, the men, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Every time God sent them a word by the prophets, what do they do? They beat them, they kill them, they curse them, they jail them, they put them in a well. Every This is what people do with God's message because God's message usually goes against the grain of what the trend and the thinking and the philosophy of the world is. And so these guys come and preach God's word and they say, who's this guy? He's causing us trouble. Our economy is going to be messed up if we believe what he believes and so on and so forth. So see, surely scripture is giving us a bleak, bleak description of a great separation between God and the Gentiles. So the question would be this, how will they ever come together? How will they ever come near to God and be reconciled to him? Well, there's only one possibility for reconciliation. They need to be, they need to have a circumcision of their heart and not of the flesh, not just of the flesh. Colossians 2.11 tells us, In him in Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not with a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision on your heart, cutting away your sinful nature in a sense, cutting that away. And so see, the Gentiles were at great distance 
from God. And so a second thing about the Gentiles found in verse 13 down through verse number 18 is that the Gentiles' distance or alienation is removed namely by one thing, and that is one, and one thing alone. And, of course, that one thing is the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' death in this passage of Scripture had a double effect. All right? In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse number 13. Here's the first effect. Jesus' death satisfied the demands of justice. All right? It secured a reconciliation with God. It says in Ephesians verse 13, chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, Jesus Christ reconciles or brings together Gentiles to God by his own shed blood unto death. That the atoning sacrifice of Christ Jesus is taught in many passages of Scripture. One such example is found in 1 John chapter 2, in verse number 2, where in that passage of Scripture, the Word of God says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. In other words, that Jesus' death paid for sins and satisfied God's judgment on sin. That included a couple things. The removal of guilt and pollution. That sin had made us unclean before God, so we needed cleansing and forgiving of the sinner. And then also, we, it included the removal of God's anger towards sinners. That's the appeasing of God's wrath. That's the word of propitiation, that God's wrath was appeased by the death of Christ, that Jesus offered the atoning sacrifice for those of the whole world. Now that cannot mean that all people's sins are automatically forgiven, even if they do not believe in the name of the Son of God, that is not true. Matter of fact, in 1 John, that rules it out. It says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and life is in the Son. And he who has the Son has life, but he who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life at all. So having the Son involves believing the Son. And those who do not believe in him cannot be said to have the Son. Therefore, they cannot be said to have eternal life. So what fits the context in that phrase, the whole world, means those Jews for whom Christ died, and those Gentiles for whom Christ died, because both make up those who will be saved out of the world, because that's how people thought of the world, the Jews and the Gentiles. So now, if John, being a Jew, has the Old Testament sacrifice in mind, or the Day of Atonement in mind, then John is saying that Jesus fulfilled the pattern set by the Old Testament sacrifices and that he did so in such a way that now the Gentiles as well as the Jews are saved in the same way. How? By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I preach that in Hebrews, when I was on that passage of Scripture. In other words, our faith 
communicates to our conscience that we are pardoned through the precious blood of Christ and only the precious blood of Christ. So brethren, there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness without Jesus Christ. There's no peace without Jesus Christ. There's no Christianity without his death, his shed blood, and his atoning substitutionary sacrifice. And from the beginning to the end, all of God's gracious purposes are carried out by Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. And it is Christ who is the head of the church. It is Christ who is the Son of God. It is Christ who is the Savior of the world. It is Christ who ascended on high. It is Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power in heaven and earth. So for sure, the only way we can be reconciled to God, and this is the first effect of the death of Christ, is through the blood of Christ. There is no other way. So for sure, the invitation here is what Jesus did on the cross is applicable to any person who comes to him. And I prayed this, this morning, if you, if you don't believe that you may have an advocate today before you leave, that, that you would know that Jesus Christ receives sinners, and that if you come with the way you are, with all your sin, then it's the blood of Christ who can wash you and make you whiter than snow. I, I saw a, a church sign on the message board. It said this, God formed us, sin deformed us. Only Jesus can transform us. So that is true. So in this case, that, listen, person has to be reconciled to God first, whether, of course, in this case, the Gentiles reconcile back to God, and it's only through the blood of Christ, and of course, the Jews are the same way. It's only through the blood of Christ, but there is a second effect of Christ's death found in our text, and if you notice what it says there, it says that, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Well, wow, that's a heavy passage of scripture. Now, once reconciliation between God and man, or Jew and Gentile, uh, is accomplished, then Gentile division is overcome by Christ's coming and making peace for both groups. How could God establish peace between th these two hostile groups? Well, there are several ways given in Scripture that the Lord accomplished this. The first way is by abolishing the enmity on the cross, all right? Where he says, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one by, of course, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In fact, the word he uses in the second part in verse 15 by abolishing his, in his flesh, the enmity, that word is a word that we better understand as hostility or being an enemy with God. A good example of the word is found in, in Luke where uh, it says where Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Of course, dealing with the issue of whether Jesus Christ should be crucified or not, right? And it says, for before that they were at enmity with one another or 
in hostility with one another or enemies with one another. And so here the word of God is saying, listen, the Lord had to abolish the hostility and he did that on the cross. So the difference between the Jews and Gentiles were significant enough to bring them into a state of separation and a state of hostility. The Jews, if you remember, were distinct in their religion. They were distinct in their dress. They were distinct in their diet. They were distinct in their laws. In fact, these unique differences in religion, in dress, in diet, in laws, all right, it says in our text, the main difference would be that of all these things were contained in their law. It says in verse 15, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, the, the thing that really separated them quite literally and kept them apart was the law and its regulations. And it di- made the people so different, they could never get together. They could ne- never agree on anything. In fact, this was so embedded in the nation of Israel, when the gospel finally came and the door was opened to the Gentiles, some of the apostles, specifically Peter, had a real issue with that. In fact, I want to turn there and look at that because I think you get a better understanding of what it's saying in Ephesians here if you understand how God dealt with Peter on the issue in Acts chapter 10 uh, in verse number 9. See, it wasn't until Peter, who was a Jew, was sent by God to bring the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius that Peter had a real problem because the law made a different and distinct uh, difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the cause of the enmity for Peter was the law itself, was the regulations that God gave the nations. And so what did God do? All right. Cornelius uh, was praying to the Lord. God answered his prayer, and he commissioned Peter to go and talk with Cornelius. But Peter had a problem. Peter never went into a Gentile's home. Peter never sat down and ate a meal with a Gentile. He never ate Gentile food. He couldn't. He wasn't allowed to. In fact, if he was going to keep separate and holy... As a Jew in the nation of Israel, he could not do that. So this is what's going on in here. So God, of course, has to give him a vision. All right? And it says in verse number 9 of Acts chapter 10, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he came, became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while he was... While they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and, uh, and he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in all kinds, there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, and a voice came to him saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And, uh, of course... God, of course, lowered kind of like a, a screen, like this screen right here. And he gave him a picture of all, all these animals. And some of the animals in that picture were animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. And so this is how Peter responds, responds in verse 14 of chapter 10 of Acts. Peter said, no, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy 
or unclean. Now, there's the mindset of the Jew. I can't have anything to do with the Gentile. They eat unholy food. They have un they worship idols, which would make us defiled and unholy. They, I can't even go into a Gentile's house without becoming unclean. So therefore, he's thinking in his mind, how can I do this, Lord? It seems like in Peter's mind that God was contradicting his own law that he gave. And God gave Israel a unique position in the world by having them, having them set apart uh, by their laws, by their commands, by their ordinances, by their dietary regulations, and it became a wall of separation. It really did. It was a wall of separation between their nation and all other nations around them. And we, all, we already know from the Torah that it forbidden Israelites from eating certain animals because certain animals were considered clean or unclean. For example, if you, without going to Levitic, Leviticus, some animals that were clean that were allowed to be eaten by the Jews were, of course, uh, animals that both chewed the cud and had split hoof. Sea creatures had to have fins and scales. Sorry, no shellfish here, no, no lobsters uh, here. Gentiles ate lobsters, can't eat lobsters. Uh, also, winged in uh, insects had to have jointed legs to hop around. We don't eat insects in the United States. Actually, not a whole lot of people do. But when you go overseas, you go into these shops, and they have chocolate-covered grasshoppers. Uh, and you see in these missionary films, you know, there are people are eating grub worms and all kinds of stuff, you know. And we're going, ooh, and, and, and of course, rightfully so. But, <laughs> but there were some unclean animals, too, that they could never eat. They could never eat birds of prey reptiles or crawlers were all crawlers were off limits Israel could not eat camels they could not eat rabbits pigs eagles vultures owls weasels rats or lizards they couldn't eat any of those things and why because this is what it says in Leviticus and I'll I'll give you verse number 44 it says for I am the Lord your God Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. So, if I read that, and I was Peter, I would say, Lord, wait a minute, I'm not getting it. You told me not to eat this, now you're telling me it's all right to eat this. What's the deal here? And so that's what was going on in his head, because unclean is typical of the description in the law for animals that were prohi prohibited. Common is a word used of food Gentiles would eat. It is a food that was not sanctified, set apart, consecrated, therefore was to be withdrawn from and not used or eaten at all whatsoever. So you know what the Lord has to do? The Lord has to do, okay, Peter, the first sheet vision didn't work, i got to give you another one. All right, so in verse number 45 of, of or 15 of Acts chapter 10, look what it says, and again a voice came to him a second time and said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So for Israel to maintain their identity and purity, the dietary laws were given and added to the covenant until the coming of Messiah. 
Of course, Christ brought an end to the middle wall of separation and tears it down. And because he tears it down, it changes everything in the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. In fact, the old was now fulfilled. Peter was still learning what was old and what was new. So this explains how Peter could disobey God three times. And because the repeated command to eat while still thinking he was obeying the Mosaic law. So yes, the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant served in part to visualize the separation of Israel from the unclean nations. That means all the Gentile nations. But now that Jesus had broken down the dividing wall, the old food restrictions were no longer needed. So God changed the covenant and ended the food distinctions. So see, there's a real conflict that Paul's dealing with in Ephesians, and he deals with in Acts, and we still have the same problem today with cultures, with, with, with eth ethnic groups, even among Gentiles, right? One group is against one group, one group is against another group, you dress like that, you eat this food, you look like this, you do that thing. And all these walls and barriers are built up all in the same way those barriers came down to. So, see, Peter got it. If you look in Acts 10, if you're still there, look to verse number 28. This is what he says. He begins to understand, Peter, and he said to them, Acts 10:28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Did he get it? Yes. He was getting it. He was beginning to understand. In fact, if you look down to verse number 32 of Acts chapter 10, it says, <clears throat> Therefore... Send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, look what he says, I almost, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So what he is, he's understanding is this, that the vision was about food, yet it really concerned race. He understood that God's cleansing of impure foods related to the cleansing of the Gentiles. So there were Peter was grasping the meaning of the vision, that the primary point was not that Peter should change his diet, but that God had dissolved the traditional distinctions between Jew and Gentile. This concept is so important that it becomes foundational for the unity of the church and the proclamation of the gospel and the outreach of missions all over the world. This breaks down all barriers for all people. That it doesn't matter who a person is, they need the gospel. The only way they're going to be reconciled to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So they need the gospel. So if 
this barrier was broken down between the Jew and Gentile, which was a real wall and a real uh, distinction, then, of course, the barrier should be broken down between us and other people of the world so we can bring them the gospel. See, God repealed the dietary laws in order to bring in those who were formerly unclean and make them clean. Who? He brings in the Gentiles who were unclean and makes them clean by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. So in Christ, no person is unholy or unclean. No one is. And this is a significant truth in Scripture to break down the barriers that exist between men and men. So today, really, the challenge for us should be, listen, our view should be challenged on this matter with God's view that all people's hearts are wicked and sinful. All people are unclean. All people need Christ. So when it comes to making judgments and distinctions between people, groups, our judgment should go the way of God's judgment. In other words, for the church to wipe out the ugly sin of discrimination, racial, ethnic, and class prejudice, it needs to constantly be letting its judgment align with God's judgments. And in this case, God makes no distinctions between race. None whatsoever. We are the ones who make the distinctions between race. So the picture of God cleansing of the um, impure foods was directly related to God's cleansing the Gentiles through receiving Christ. That's why in, right there, if you're right there in Acts, look over to Acts chapter 15. Look at verse verse number 8. It says this. Notice how he says this, how this is written in this book. Acts 15 verse 8 informs us in verse number 8, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Notice the us and the them. In verse number 9, and he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, and then notice what it says, cleansing their hearts, how? By faith. So see, everyone is made unclean when they come to Christ. We all have sin, sick, defiled hearts. And that we can do nothing to cleanse ourselves. Only blood can wash away sin. Only the blood of Christ can wash away sin. In fact, sin, says Matthew Henry... Sins leave a stain upon the soul, a stain of guilt and of pollution. Nothing can fetch us out of this stain but the blood of Christ. And rather than it should not be washed out, Christ was willing to shed his own blood to purchase pardon and purity for them, his people. Our sins and depravity render us unclean in the sight of God. And so we must be cleansed if we are to stand before him unafraid. In, in a phys- on a physical level, it takes water to cleanse dirt from our bodies or our clothing or other things. But on a spiritual level, only the blood of Christ can wash us from sin and from a dirty, sin-sick soul. Isn't that true? See, if that is true, that means that Jew and Gentile, bond and free, 
rich and poor, pagan and barbarian, people with red skin, people with yellow skin, people with brown skin and black skin and white skin, all these need the gospel. Matter of fact, they played no uh, judgment in what God does. God looks at the heart, not at the outward features of people, not at their culture, not at their backgrounds, not at their what condition they are socially. That God, that's not where he looks. He looks at the heart. And the heart needs to be cleansed just like your heart needed to be cleansed and my heart needed to be cleansed. And the only way my heart or your heart or anybody's heart can be cleansed, no matter who they are or how they look or where they came from, is the blood of Christ. See, so the emphasis here is the gospel. The gospel is the one that reconciles men with God and men with men. And of course, the Messiah will someday reconcile nations with nations. He will do that. So people who are lost, in darkness, in bondage to their sin, alienated from the life of God, and under God's wrath, are people who desperately need a word from God. That's what they need. That's what they need. So see, we all need to realize that no one is saved by circumcision, having the sign of the covenant. No one is saved by law-keeping, but all people are saved alike solely by the utterance which is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ and connect it with the Savior. Consequently, if God makes one thoroughly clean who comes to Christ by faith, then they are clean. And that all who repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God will be without contamination. They will be pure and clean to enter God's presence. See, so that's the first means. God will establish, how God will establish peace with God, and then he will establish peace with one another. And if you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, at verse number 15, it says this in the middle of the verse. He says, okay, so that, in verse 15, in himself, Ephesians 2.15, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. And verse 16, and might, recon might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Christ puts to death the hostility that exists between men and men. That's what he does. So once the wall of the law is removed, there is only one other thing to do. Because God's actions confirm that God accepts all who repent and believe. And that's simply this. Go preach the gospel to all people, no matter who they are. And don't let anything else block you from doing that. Don't let anything keep you from someone who looks different and smells different and eats different and dresses different and comes from a different country and has a different language and has a different accent don't let that block you from sharing Christ with them see all prejudices in the church need to be gone 
That's why the church should always be multi, multi-ethnical. All kinds of nations should be coming into the church no matter who they are and being part of the body of Christ because that's what the Lord did. That's what he did. In fact, in the word of God, we, we see that uh, in order for the church to wipe out, again, the ugly sin of discrimination and racial and ethnic and class prejudice, it needs to constantly remember that all come equally to believe and therefore God accepts all who repent and believe. He gives them the gift of repentance of their sins. He gives them the gift of forgiveness. He gives them the same gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, by faith, the Holy Spirit takes possession. He identifies them with the children of God in water baptism. He also equally uh, identifies them and welcomes them into his family, into the Christian family, by taking this approach, of course. Not only Peter kept unity, and a favorable conclusion resulted where he says, and when he heard this, they quieted down in Acts chapter 10 and glorify God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. See, that's, that is a significant point in Scripture, because that's how peace comes. In fact, the third means of God, how God will establish peace between two groups is found in verse number 17 and 18. And notice what it says, by preaching the gospel of peace to all people groups. Look what it says in Ephesians 2.17. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. Who's afar off? The Gentiles, right? And peace to those who were near. Who was near? The Jews. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So in this passage of scripture, of course, which, which is a quote from Isaiah 57, verse number 19, that's where he's quoting from. He is saying, listen, preach the gospel of peace to all people groups. That's how people are, and nations will be at peace with God, peace with each other, and peace, uh, there could be world peace. That's the only way there could be world peace. We're going to see, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars until Christ comes. But when Christ comes and he establishes his kingdom here on earth, we're going to see the fruits of a king who establishes righteousness in this world and peace in this world. And of course, that will lead ultimately into the eternal kingdoms of God. So see, in these last days, uh, the Lord has really inaugurated the harvest of souls into the kingdom, the gospels being preached, people are getting saved, and so the first coming of Christ initiated the start of the last days, and we have been in the last days for over 2,000 years now. The last days is the last period of the world which is ushered in by the first coming of Christ and continues until the second coming of of Christ and at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost it initiated the work that God wanted in bringing his church together 
And, of course, that means during our era, God is continuing to bring both Jew and Gentiles into one body called the church. Also, the universality of the message of the gospel <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, 17, where it says, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all my mankind, meaning that no longer will God limit his spirit to a few here and there, but all who call on the name of the Lord will receive the Holy Spirit from every tribe and nation. And then the universality of the, of the message of the gospel found in Acts 2 also. It says, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall bring forth the message of how one is made right with God, how one is made at peace with God. So voicing the saving message of God will no longer roll off the lips of Hebrew-speaking prophets, but the universal proclamation of the gospel will come through a multiplicity of languages from people everywhere, all over the world, from all cultures, and God will call Gentiles to salvation, and at the same time, he will call Jews to salvation. But at this time, the preaching of the gospel to the Jew is judgment to the Jew because God has partially blinded the Jew that they are not coming in as a people group. They're coming in individually just like anybody. But someday, I believe that the Lord's going to open up a great revival for the Jews and they're going to come in nationally as a people of God and come into God's fold. Now all that... Uh, in Ephesians is showing that, listen, if anybody's going to have peace, it has to be first peace with God through Christ. And then there's a possibility of peace with men. Even with people I was at one time an enemy with or separated from or distant from, that it's possible for me now to be a friend with anybody at any place, any time on this earth because of Christ. And, and you know, as well as I know, that if you've traveled anywhere to a different part of the world and met believers and talked with them, even through a translator, you feel like you have this bond, this common, commonality with them, right? Because, because you know Christ. There's your common denominator. Christ, Jesus, is the common denominator, right? See, and of course, as this world grows worse and worse, and the gospel goes out to all the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then God's program continues on. But someday, remember, we are heading in a linear matter somewhere. We have a goal, that means we have hope, like nobody has it. So, really, giving the Gospels, going to people that are hopeless, and giving them hope. And that's the only way. They don't see that, they don't believe that right now, but you know what, how many times have you witnessed and spoke to people who you know weren't getting it, but then later on found out they came to Christ and God used you to either plant a seed, to water a seed, and then God's the one who brings the increase. You don't always know that, but thank the Lord when someone does come and believe and they bear fruit of salvation. Isn't that, isn't that a great joy? Matter of fact, I don't, you know, I'm on cloud nine, whatever that means. 
I'm on cloud nine when somebody comes to the Lord. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm also stupefied because I can't believe God used me. You know, who, who am I? You know, this baked clay, you know, this weak earthen vessel. And God speaks through us, not angels, the gospel. See, we're the ones who can get into the nooks and crannies of the world. We, us, and talk to people that no one else could talk to. You are the ones who can get in with people in, on your job, in your family, that I can't talk to, but you can. All right, and, and believe me, this must be in your mind. They need the gospel of peace. And you know what? You're a person of peace because now you're connected to the Prince of Peace and you have the message of peace. You cannot be silent. You understand that? You cannot be silent. Cannot. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for the word of God. I pray, Lord, that there was an understanding of this passage of Scripture on what you did, Lord, in removing the hostility between not only Gentile and God and Jew and God by the blood of Christ, but you did that with men and men that you re removed the hostility between them once they came through Christ to believe by faith in your solution to their sin problem and their uncleanness. And Lord, you made them clean. And once you make us clean, we're clean forever. That our sin is washed away, never to be brought up against us in judgment. Lord, we know that the world needs this. We know that that family member or that neighbor or that co-worker needs the gospel. They're steeped in their own life. They're steeped in a circular view of what's going on in the world and what's going on in their life, and they really don't have hope or peace. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to be more conscious and aware that we're the ones to bring the message right where we're at right to the people that are around us. And I pray, Lord, that you would never let us forget it. And I even pray, Lord, that you will allow us to get into the communities that are closed off in our area. Let us get into the Muslim community. Let us get, us, get into the Hindu community. Let, let us get into these communities, Lord, that are, are so different and seem so far away that some of us have never even met any of them around here or talk with them, and yet they're all over the place. Lord, break the wall down for us there. Allow us to bring the gospel of peace to them. And Lord, whatever they're believing, it won't matter. The gospel is more powerful than anything else. And Lord, I pray that you would bring the increase for the glory of your name through us, earthen vessels. In Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.